the third lecture uh, on two concepts of Sharia and uh, he has asked also that this be held more like a seminar so that uh, there will be a real discussion between, between us. Uh, I'm not Professor Sarah Foote, although I look like her, like her but not quite. Uh, she is running the faculty and she is under terrible pressure, she apologized and asked me to replace her and I assured her that it would be all right. So uh, if you bear with me, uh, there is no reason for me to again introduce Professor Phil Aliansai, but I'll say at the start, uh, I'll this is beyond apologetics, but I need to present an apologetics of Gistrunza. Uh, because I was challenged two days ago by Professor Filali Ansari, uh, why did I put him between a chief rabbi and a retired archbishop? Uh, although he doesn't have any claim for any similar or parallel status. And actually the, the apology I want to give is for inviting a rabbi or an archbishop, not for inviting a professor. We are in a university here. Although this is a chair in interfaith studies, all those who know me know that I'm not, uh, nothing against interfaith also, but I'm not an interfaith person. Uh, I think that the comparative study of religion should be done um, as objectively as possible and by uh, people approaching all religions, including their own, with at once sympathy and criticism. And this is not something easy to do. It's especially difficult to do with your own religion. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the challenge of the scholarly study of religion. And it is not something that usually you can ask a rabbi or an archbishop to do, uh, to approach his religion, or it's usually his, yes, but uh, as if it were the religion of someone else and to approach other religions as if they were his own. That's, the, that's what I think that the scholar of religion should do. And uh, I thought, now, something else I wanted to do here, because it's a faith, an interfaith uh, chair, I wanted to bring people uh, who would be able to speak, A, about their own religion, B, about their own religion and its relationship to other religions, see by speaking about their own religion, as I said, with sympathy, but with, uh, in a critical way at once, and also to speak about their own religion, not as a closed, uh, static entity, 
but not also either as a number of uh, specific points uh, and, and movements not having very much to do with one another and not being able to see the, father, the forest for the woods. And this is something also that uh, we find uh, very rarely people who are not theologians but historians of religion able to do. And uh, Professor Fali has already demonstrated yesterday and today and, and the day before yesterday, he will do it today, but he has done it past, that he's able to do all that, to think about Islam with sympathy, with a critical eye, to know and to, and to refer to different uh, phenomena in Islam past and present, and to also speak about the forest and not only the, uh, the trees, and also to do that with an ability to think about other religions. In the case of Christianity and, in Islam, and Islam here, I think I approach two people who are at once, who are, who are men of faith, but both of them are academic uh, scholars. Uh, one with the, um, the uh, Archbishop of, uh, the former Archbishop of Canterbury has a doctorate from Cambridge, I think, but we accept them here, right? And uh, the, the former, the chief rabbi has a doctorate from Oxford. So, uh, and um, we'll see what Lord Rowan Williams does next year, but I'm sure that he will be able to speak about the trees and about the forest and about the other forests. Uh, we shouldn't worry. And the chief rabbi did that also uh, last year. And so I, my apology was for having invited him then, not for having invited you. Okay, well, thank you yes. very much for this introduction. I'm now reassured if I can say <laughs> that uh, I am, uh, well, in a legitimate position here. And, uh, well, uh, today I have uh, maybe the, the subject which is at the heart of our concerns. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, what I, I, this is why I like the format of a seminar. I hope that what I will submit will uh, bring a number of reactions that will help me uh, and will maybe help us fine tune uh, our attitudes towards this subject. If uh, any of you was listening to the BBC yesterday late at night, in the news, there was one piece of news which, is, which was uh, quite remarkable. It was mentioned that a survey which has been done in a large number of Muslim countries has concluded that, uh, these are the words they used, an overwhelming majority of, the of those surveyed in those countries were in favor of having the Sharia as the law of the land in where they are. So Muslims, in, a, in their majority, overwhelming again, are in favor of Sharia. And, well, the news reader went on in, uh, in reporting the outcomes of the, of the survey. 
The other uh, finding was that those also a majority did not want the prescriptions of Sharia to, to be implemented. So I'm sure that the news reader was not aware of the paradox of these findings, that people want Sharia, but they don't want the content of Sharia. And this is why I think uh, this is the heart of the subject. And this is where we need maybe to mobilize our, uh, our intelligence in the best ways, to try to go into what makes this kind of paradox uh, happen. And again, if I made this survey, I checked uh, on the internet, it is available. It's by the Pew Research Center, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a massive endeavor, and the outcomes are, are quite impressive. So, I would say that maybe about the word Sharia itself, there is one thing that one needs to notice from the outset. There is, we are plainly before a very difficult term, very difficult to interpret or to explain in one easy way. Uh, today or the day before maybe, I mentioned a kind of a trap of semantics or linguistic trap. The fact that, for example, a word of Islam or the use of a word like, like Islam caused a lot, of, a lot of problems just because it is used to refer to different things and that people may be using the same word but thinking of different things and uh, going into misunderstandings and so on. I think this may be uh, true even for the word of Sharia. And this is why people may be at the same time in favor of Sharia, but not in favor of, sharia, of contents of Sharia. So here, what I would like to, to try before you, and I hope I'll hear from you whether this works or not, is an approach that was adopted by a prominent philosopher in the early 20th century. The philosopher is Sir Isaiah Berlin, and he has written a piece entitled Two Concepts of Liberty. This article is said to be one of the most influential writings of contemporary political philosophy. It has led to a clarification that has had a great influence not only on the way people think about things but also in their in behaviors and maybe in in even in world politics. Uh, Sir Berlin has, men in his article, mentions that there is something that can be described as negative liberty and something that could be described as positive liberty. Negative liberty from, I'm trying to summarize what he said very quickly, negative li liberty is simply a situation where there is no obstacle which prevents someone from doing what he or she wants to do. This is the simplest. Positive liberty, which was presented by many as something much more important and much more valuable, is the ability to realize some kind of outcome that is worth living for. It's the ability, for example, to real realize the good life of a believer within a religious community to realize, if I can say, some good essence of what being a human, some good definition or some good way of being a human. 
And he showed in this article that the second uh, meaning of the notion of liberty was in fact uh, contradictory. That first, the two meanings were not only different, but they were incommensurable, that they, they were co conflicting with each other. And that the second implied something which is against liberty itself. It implied that there is something that could be described as human essence, as human nature. And in order to be free, you have to realize this, this definition of human essence. So you have to obey some kind of framework or to fit within some kind of framework in order to be what your real self would, is supposed to be. So this, is, this has been maybe the piece that was the most influential in making the fallacy of some theories like those behind communism or some forms of socialism. If uh, one can say this piece, uh, I think it is possible to say, has had a very deep influence and a very deep effect in making things clear among those who discussed issues of uh, political liberty in different regimes and in different systems. So I am, the idea occurred to me maybe to attempt the same approach to the notion of liberty, of Sharia, to see whether, and I think that this may be quite helpful, but again, I count on your reactions to see whether it is really the case or not. So I would say if we look at the uh, <coughs> concept of Sharia, if we try to have a historical appro approach, we can maybe quite easily distinguish at least three moments, three different stages. One, I would say, is the, the one that the earliest that happened at the, mom at the moments where the Quran was revealed and was transmitted to the community by the Prophet and how the Prophet has received the, 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 the Quranic injunctions about Sharia. What we can say about this moment are a few important things. One is that the Quran accepts very clearly and very explicitly that the, there are, if I can say, there is a variation in the regulations that are adopted by various communities. That there is a plurality, a diversity, a legal, a kind of uh, legal diversity which is not against the will of God. To, there is a verse which says clearly to each community we have given a set of regulations and uh, a style of life or some customs. And had God willed, he would have unified all humanity under one set of regulations, but he preferred that diversity be there. These are not the exact words, but a rendition of the meaning that God has preferred diversity in order to allow communities to compete for doing the good. So diversity, if I can say, is something that is a given that humans have to accept as a gift from God. The other point that we find in the Quran is that there is also the idea of evolution in time. That it is said very clearly that God can uh, 
set aside a number of verses that he revealed and replace them with better ones. That there is the idea of improvement in time is there and it is possible. So, and it is, yesterday I mentioned the notion of abrogation, the abrogated and the abrogating verses in the Quran. It is accepted that during the 23 years where the Quran has been revealed, a number of verses have been abrogated by others so that the idea of evolution is, uh, uh, is accepted in, in the Quran. The third point that one may mention here, and uh, this is about the reception of uh, the uh, idea of Sharia. First, the word Sharia itself in its etymological uh, meaning uh, means rather the way to go. The, uh, it doesn't mean a system which is frozen in time or in, which is frozen, simply frozen. It means rather, the, this is the etymology. And etymology does not always apply, but it is there. <coughs> uh, for the early Muslims, they accepted the regulations or the commandments of the Quran as uh, adding or as coming to change customs and regulations that were prevailing in their context. So they did not take them as they came to be taken much later as pieces of a large system, of a comprehensive system that defines rules for every activity, for everything that in the lives of people. They took them as, if I can say, changes that had to be brought to existing customs and regulations in order to align these customs and regulations with the ethics that was taught by the, the new religion. And by the way, the number of these uh, prescriptions or commandments is also very limited. Uh, a French scholar, Jacques Berck, has made a very interesting comparison. He has uh, attempted to count the number of discrete rules that one can find in the Roman Codex, in the Halakha of the Jews, and in the Quran. And he found, well, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I can go back to his text, that the number of prescriptions offered by the Quran is very limited in comparison. I think it's something less than 200 uh, in the Quran. While in the Halakha, he says that there are something like 600 uh, pieces, discrete pieces of commandments. And in the Roman Codex, there is over 1,000. So the number is very limited. And again, for the early Muslims, they took them as changes, as, as uh, rules that were brought to change, to, to, to change something that was the, the, the general framework that, uh, by which their societies were living. And it was, this is the second moment. I have now uh, said a few things about the Quranic moment, the moment the Quran had been to, transmitted to the community. Later on, when uh, well, despotism took hold of the political power in Muslim context, and as I said maybe uh, two days ago, a number of people dedicated themselves to uh, defining or to finding ways to live a Muslim life under 
despotic regime and those people became the early fuqaha, the early ulama, the early theologians and so on. Well, in time, after this, this is something that matured through a number of, of decades, it's the, the, the one who wrote systematically about this, who represent, if I can say, the, 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 the crux of the second moment is Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i. He is founder of one of the four schools of jurisprudence. And uh, he was born, what we know historically, that is that he was born, it's a round number and it's easy to, to remember, exactly 150 years after the death of the Prophet. And he wrote his were his main treatise, which is called Risala, Risala, the treatise of Shafi'i, when he was 36 years old, and the treaty became, in a way, the, uh, the founding uh, or the foundation of the Usul al-Fiqh as it came to be known. And it is in this treaty that, if I can say, for the first time in the history of Muslims, the idea was proposed that instead of looking at the Qur'anic commandments as a number of discrete regulations that change this or that in the overall system of regulations that prevailed, one could adopt those Qur'anic prescriptions as yardsticks, as models, and with an appropriate methodology, one could build a comprehensive system which would enable all Muslims to live, to live by exactly the same regulations. The idea was Shafi'i had been the pupil of Malik, who was teaching in Medina, in Arabia, and also a pupil of uh, Abu Hanifa and uh, Shaybani, who were teaching in Kufa in the Iraq. And he found that they were, the both were teaching about law about uh, regulations and so on, but there were substantial differences between their rulings because each of them was having in mind the background of the thinking of each of, of them was the uh, system of, of regulations or customs that prevailed in their own environment. So the, uh, the customs of Medina were different from those of And he wondered why. How come that we are now all Muslims and we, there is no consistency in the kind of regulations that are adopted in each part of the... It's because by then, the realm, the geographic realm the, that uh, was under Islam was quite large. It became an empire. And the idea of uh, shedding or pushing aside the local uh, customs and replacing them by a unified one uh, came and imposed itself, and since then it was adopted by most, uh, by nearly all schools, those which have survived, and has, so at this second moment, it's a new, uh, if I can say, approach to the idea of Sharia that came about, and an approach which makes of it, uh, the idea, if I can say, what I want to stress here, is that the idea of Sharia as a comprehensive system of regulations is something that came relatively late in the history of Muslims. That it, that it is part of the history of Muslims and that it is not necessarily 
part of the teachings of the Quran. So it is rather part of Islam as a message, uh, as a history, sorry, rather than part of Islam as the message. If we take the terminology of Abdul Majid Sharfi, part of Islam dum, not of Islam if we take the terminology of Qutsun. So this is a historical development and one must say that this has worked so well and was accepted by Muslims. And the methodology developed by Shafi'i is a very interesting one. It adopted, the methodology was based on the Aristotelian analogy, the, the technique of the making comparison between, as I said, some regulations were taken to be yardsticks, to be models from which others could be derived. So it was, there was a heavy use of, uh, of uh, analogy. And there was also a heavy use of traditions from the Prophet. Until then, no one has, if I can say, cared too much about what the Prophet himself had, besides the Quran, what the Prophet had said or what he decided here and there. His own traditions or his own sayings were maybe uh, part of uh, a number of uh, uh, were transmitted in some circles, but it is since Shafi'i decided that Sharia could become a comprehensive system that interest in the hadith grew and collection of hadith has in effect began when it, this decision has been taken. This is then, at that moment, 200 years after the death of the Prophet, that the task of collecting the hadith of, uh, of uh, having systematic collections of hadith began most seriously. And I won't go into this because it's a, uh, historically a very important uh, development and has had its own challenges and so on. So this is for the second moment in the history of Sharia. I will come now uh, to the third, what I consider as a third moment in the history of the Sharia. And I see it beginning, begin in the 19th century. In the 19th century, and especially in some parts of the Muslim world, in the Ottoman Empire, the idea came uh, for the state to uh, codify the law to follow models of uh, what had been happening recently in some Europe, West European countries, in France, in, in uh, Switzerland, in, uh, in England. These countries had been recently, for example, in France, there, is, there was the Code Napoleon. So had been uh, putting or laying down a number of legal codes for several uh, aspects of life, legal codes for if I can, personal status for commercial law and so on. This, is, this has happened in the 18th century in Europe. And the Ottoman Empire at that time, and I mentioned something yesterday about the fascination of Muslims for the law and order in Western European countries, wanted to do the same. And so began something that can be described, that is described as the codification of Sharia law. Until then, even if Shafi'i and the other schools had adopted the idea of a, a comprehensive system, this did not lead them to build codes. 
the idea was what, what, what the, the, the legists have had at that time were a number of, if I can say, uh, cases of uh, problems and uh, solutions that had been proposed by each. And each judge, each one who had to deal with any case, had to refer to the literature of the school to which he belonged and then to exercise his own judgment to find a, a ruling. Uh, with codification, you had, so if I can say before codification, the judge had to have some kind of competence, some skills. He had to be able to read those early texts, those early treatises, and he had to be able to, if I can say, make his own idea or his own conclusions as to what should be done. But with the code, the idea of having articles and closing, if I can say, a number of, of, of rulings in a, in, in a code form, made it possible for any bureaucrat, anyone could have the, the code and, the, uh, and then decide. It did, no need was there anymore for the skills and expertise and for, if I can say, the exercise of thinking each case as a new case in the light of cases that have been uh, treated or discussed or decided on by previous generation of jurists. So this has been a major change and it has led to the idea of Sharia as being, and here again I'm taking an expression from Jacques Berck, a kind of catalogue of prescriptions. Sharia, if I can say in the beginning, was a kind of moral code of an, uh, which contained a number of changes to existing customs. It became the means to find rulings for any new uh, situation. And then at the end, it becomes a catalogue of prescriptions, which is, uh, I can say it, a kind of caricature of what the, 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 the first idea of Sharia was. And uh, one of the things that all those who come to study Sharia uh, see from the outset, from the first, is that it is so different from any idea that one can have of law as we see it today. The, the Sharia covers subjects such as prayer, how to pray, how to clean oneself, how to be polite with people, how, which are not things that, that the law is supposed to, 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 to deal with. It, but it doesn't include many things in commercial activities, in politics and so on. So it is not quite, it doesn't cover the same thing. It covers more than what the law usually covers. And it also covers less. It does, it, there's no, it's not a system, legal system that is parallel and comparable uh, with other systems of law. So uh, this is what you find in any treaties. From the outset, they would tell you, well, Sharia is something complex. It is not, it's a kind of moral code which has been used uh, by Muslims. And what one can see is that there has been in history a, a compilation, a huge literature of opinions. Sharia was a jurist's law. The law, as we understand it, is made by the state. And it is through the state that the law comes to us nowadays. 
But in those times for Sharia, the law was made, was supposed to be, well not made, they don't say they are making it, they say they are extracting it from the Quran and uh, building it from the models, from the yardsticks, as I said, that they find in the Quran. But uh, the law was not made by the political power. The political power was supposed to be itself under the, the law and to be bound, bound by, by the law. I, can, uh, I had in my notes the idea of telling you a story that happened in the history of Morocco that shows, illustrates the, what the Sharia meant for people who lived uh, during those centuries. If you want, I can do it if we, yes, have, time. we have time. Yes. Okay, well, it is, uh, the, the story that is most often told is that of uh, Sheikh al-Islam in the Ottoman Empire. Sheikh al-Islam, literally, it means the elder of Islam. It was the main authority. And uh, the historians show that uh, the, this position was very prestigious, very influential. The Sultan was supposed to listen to the Sheikh al-Islam and to, take, to learn from him and to sit at his feet. He was the Sultan, the king, but he was supposed to sit at the feet of the Sheikhs uh, and to learn from him what Sharia and to be at the service of Sharia and so on. So this is the one of the images that is that is given about Sharia and its role in in society. The story I, I which struck me a few years ago is not very often mentioned. It is the story of a alim who lived in Fez in the 17th century. Abdeslam bin Hamdun Gissous is his name. Uh, at that time, what happened in Morocco is something that uh, uh, reminds us of uh, something that the Ottomans had done in their time. Uh, those Muslim empires in the middle periods, as historians said, had a great challenge in building a army, an army that could be reliable that the sovereign could count on. Usually, the army was a collection of tribes which, were, uh, which dedicated, if I can say, their effort and so on, and their lives to serving as or offering to the sovereign a number of soldiers. But tribal armies were not very reliable. There was a kind of a spirit of, of revolt, and they, they were, in a way, continuous negotiations between the sovereign and those tribes which rallied with him and which could in, uh, very quickly choose to uh, support someone else, a rival and so on. And that was one of the reasons of the precarity of the systems, of the political systems in the Muslim world. The Ottomans had found a way around that, around that challenge. Instead of having uh, tribal armies, they used another system which is, uh, well, they took young children mainly from Christian families in Eastern Europe, and uh, these are the Janissaries, and they brought them and educated them in, in an Islamic way, well, they gave them an Islamic education, and trained them as soldiers, and since those individuals were cut from their families and clans and tribes, 
they did have no attachment besides the only link they have, they recognized the only attachment was, or the only devotion was to the sovereign and to their position. So they, they could in a way have some kind of professional armies by having what was called slave soldiers. This has worked very well and so in Morocco at that time the existing Sultan wanted to do something similar. So he went to Sub-Saharan Africa and brought a number and well uh, brought Manu military with, uh, with a number of young people and one made of them a kind of, uh, of army for, for, for him. And then he wanted also to supplement the, his army by taking all the slaves that were owned by people in, in the country, all those young men who were from sub-Saharan Africa, and take them, taking them. Here, the faqih from Fas, Gessous, came back and said, well, this is against Sharia. But here, stop, he wanted to exert, if I can say, the powers that in theory were those of the uh, faqih against the sultan. The supremacy of Sharia was supposed to be absolute. So he reacted by saying, you cannot enslave those people. And you cannot, if I can say, even uh, if you have a woman and a man as your own slaves, if they marry and have children, the children cannot be slaves. Because slavery, the status of slavery, is not something that can be inherited and cannot, that this, for Sharia, this could not be acceptable. Everyone is born free. This is the Shari principle. And this man has been persecuted. He was a very wealthy man. He was, if I can say, all his wealth was taken from him. And he was himself made into a slave. He was enslaved by the Sultan. And he was displayed in Fez. And all the population of Fez was asked to pay for his freedom. And people, all it is known in history, all gave everything they had. Because he was so respected in the, the city and so on. Women were giving all the, their jewels, all what they had and everyone. But each time the, 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 the representative of the Sultan raised the price. So he was not freed and at the end was killed in prison. And what we have from him is a very nice piece that he wrote in prison in which he says that I have had the wealth, all the wealth that a man can dream of having. I had the best of families. I had learning, but I could not go against a sacrosanct principle of Sharia, even if the Sultan wants it. Even if the Sultan alleged that defense against Christians imposed that, I cannot in my conscience accept something that Sharia does not accept. And this piece, we have it in Arabic and it is translated into English. It's a superb piece which shows the, if I can say, prestige of Sharia uh, in the minds of people. This makes me go to my uh, final point in the presentation. The two meanings of Sharia uh, that I alluded to in the beginning. The two, well, from this example, it can be seen, and also from the latest survey, from the historical case that I mentioned, and for the survey that was mentioned by the BBC yesterday, it shows that the Sharia has an immense prestige 
in the minds and the hearts of Muslims. Sharia, because it is supposed to be the moral code, that if I can say the natural law, I'm abusing the language here, that is given by God himself to all humans. The, if I can say the absolutely sacred system of principles that, so there is something like what is used, what is uh, adopted in, uh, in the West as the rule of law. But here the law is conceived as a sacred collection of, or a sacred system of principles that are conveyed by God that no one should, no human should be uh, enabled or able to abuse. Yet at the same time, society, and this is the second meaning of the Sharia, this, these prescriptions like cutting the hand of the thief or those prescriptions in divorce, repudiation, inheritance, and all that, they know that these are historical interpretations, that these are historical rulings that were proposed for some specific the conditions that were set to help solve some specific conditions. So this explains the paradox that the survey has, 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 has highlighted. That people, yes, everyone wants Sharia to be the law of the land, but no one wants the prescriptions of the Sharia to be implemented. So how can you want something and not uh, its contents? Well, the solution for me is that, in fact, there are two notions of Sharia. There is the Sharia, as, as I said, this divine moral code, which everyone is, is in favor of, and there are these prescriptions that people are not ready. The problem, if I may say here, is that this clarity, this distinction, is not in the minds of people. So you have some people, they are called the Salafis, who take the code, the catalog of prescriptions, as it came from the, what the Ottomans have done, as being the Sharia itself, who confused the two meanings, and for whom you cannot have the first meaning if you don't have the second. If you don't cut the hands of thieves, then you are not having the moral code. And they are making huge confusions. I am calling it, I have called it in some paper as a, an optical illusion, as the, seeing something in very broken ways, as taking what uh, some what historical developments have have uh, uh, made visible for the thing itself. So maybe by clarifying things, by historicizing again, as I was saying, by showing that in fact Sharia is deemed to be sacred because it is a set of moral principles, not not a catalogue of prescription, then it will be possible to evolve and to move ahead. There was, and this will be maybe my, my, uh, my last point here, there was recently a Tunisian jurist by the name of Mohammed Sharfi. It's, there are two Sharfis in Tunisia, Abdel Majid, whom I mentioned yesterday, and Mohammed Sharfi, who was a jurist who died a few years ago and who had a very interesting proposal, who put a very interesting proposal on the table that maybe is still waiting to be discussed in, de in depth. The proposal was that in Muslim contexts, one needs to acknowledge 
that there are not only the three estates or the three powers that were uh, spelled out or laid out by Montesquieu, that there was not only the uh, legislative, ju judicial and executive powers, one needs to have a religious, a fourth one, a religious power. And he suggests that in constitutions of the Muslim world, there would be provision for some kind of council, of council of ethics, that of Islam, Muslim ethics, that would be enabled to review all the laws, to review the, not a, a council like the Iranian one, which reviews the decisions in the name uh, of Sharia, of Islam, any decision that is made by the state in Iran, they do have, since the revolution of 79, they do have a council which reviews every decision in principle, every law that is proposed by the, the, the executive or by the legislative, and they check its conformity. Their role, this council has as a task to check uh, the conformity of each of these laws with Sharia. The idea proposed by Sharfi is different. It's to make, and I think this has a potential of maybe solving this dilemma, of maybe helping face this, what I call the paradox that uh, comes out in a survey like the one that uh, was mentioned in the BBC yesterday. Uh, this idea of having within the constitution and under the authority of the state, this is very important, under the authority not independently from the modern state within the constitution, having a council that would review the uh, laws and regulations and decisions made by the state, but check, if I can say, their conformity to ethical sharia, to, ethic, to sharia seen as a system of ethical principles. This is what I wanted to suggest, and again, I very much hope having some good criticism today so that I may be able to, to, to correct my reasoning on my thinking about the subject. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you.